Hello and welcome to Accent of Women, a show by and about women from diverse cultures and languages right across the world. I'm Giselle Hanna. There are currently presidential elections on foot in the Islamic Republic of Iran. Though these elections may make absolutely no difference to the lives of Iranian women, it still provides an opportunity to look at this part of the world. Today's interview was conducted by Dr. Elham Naij, an academic in Iranian studies at the University of New South Wales. She interviews Dr. Claudia Yahoubi, who is also an academic looking at the oppression of women in Iran. Dr. Elham Naij start this interview by introducing Dr. Claudia Yahoubi. Today's guest is Claudia Yahoubi. Claudia Yahoubi is a Russian Institute Associate Professor in Persian Studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. She is the author of Temporary Marriage in Iran, Gender and Body Politics in Modern Iranian Literature and Film, published with Cambridge University Press in 2020, and Subjectivity in Atar, Persian Sufism and European Mysticism, published by Purdue in 2017. As an Iranian-Armenian-American, Yaghubi's research concerns the literature of the Middle East with a special focus on Persian and Armenian literature. Claudia Yaghubi's third book project is tentatively titled Multiple Consciousness, Transnationalism in Iranian-Armenian Cultural Productions. This project examines the various creative ways that Iranian-Armenian authors and artists as members of religious and cultural minority populations of Iran and later in the diaspora in the US craft and negotiate a unique notion of self, which is at odds with the wish to be integrated into mainstream society while maintaining ties with the homeland. Welcome, Claudia. Thank you, Elham, for this kind introduction. I'm happy to be here today. It's a pleasure to have you with us. First, could you please explain to the listener what Sire is and how does it differ from other categories of marriage in Iran? Of course. So as Elham mentioned, I explored Sire marriages in my second book in the literature and film of modern Iran. But before um, going into the cultural productions, I want to emphasize that Sireh is a tradition that predates Islam in the Arabian Peninsula. And it remains a legitimate function among the Iranian 12 Shiites. And even though Omar II Caliph outlawed Sireh, Shiites um, have chosen to view this command as optional and non-binding. And even though it is banned in Sunni communities, some forms of the custom have even survived in Sunni communities in the form of unions known as Orfi or Mesyar. As is it's um, in the Shiite cousin, Sunni temporary marriages or Sireh marriages have mostly functioned in private and in secret until recent times. And Shiites often argue for the legitimacy of this kind of marriage using the Quran, noting that the prophet himself permitted it. And they use this um, surah from Quran, which um, literally says that that which has been made lawful or halal by the prophet is halal till the day of resurrection. And that which has been forbidden or haram is haram till the day of resurrection. So Shias agreed that Omar had forbidden temporary marriage. However, um, he maintained that this command was a political act at the time and not a legal ruling based on the Sharia. 
So that's why temporary marriage or sire marriages have survived and remain historically controversial. Under um, Iranian civil law, however, we have two kinds of, you know, two types of recognized marriages, one of which is nikah, or the formal type of marriage, and the other one is sire or the temporary marriage, which in Arabic is also called mutaq. The basis for nikah marriage is socially, which is also socially superior to sire marriages, is that the couple is required to wed permanently and nothing should separate them but divorce or death. And within the limits of this nikah or the formal marriage, Islam permits sexual life. But in sire marriages, the couple outlines the duration of the marriage and the specified financial obligations of the man towards his sire wife. And in this type of marriage, there is no divorce. And by the end of the specified timeline, the temporary spouses separate from one another unless they choose to renew the contract. But if they choose to separate, there is um, that financial arrangement or uh, which is called ajr that has to be paid and after that they are done. So the primary purpose of nekha is the establishment of family and procreation, while in sire marriages, um, you know, the main purpose is sexual gratification and often that of the man. So despite the legality and legitimization of both marriages in Shia Islam, particularly in Iran, Sire marriages carry a social stigma that marks the couple, particularly the woman who enters such marriages, as well as the union itself as inferior to nikah unions. Uh, thank you so much, Claudia. Um, in your book, you outline how sire is depicted in literature and film and its relationship with the stigma of sex work and the role of the clergy, as well as times where it was encouraged, such as after the Iran-Iraq war. Can you speak a little about the various moral judgments made about Syria and how they are depicted in the arts? So I, in my book, I looked at the cultural productions um, such as novels and short stories from the Pahlavi era and onto cinematic works from um, the Islamic Republic. And through a quick analysis of the literature during the Pahlavi era, we see that Syria women characters frequently enter socio-sexual relationships with men out of economic obligations. However, the truth of the matter is that sire relationships are formed due to a web of factors rather than just this simple financial dependency. Other factors to name a few include, for example, saving the family's honor by being able to call oneself married or believing in the heavenly reward associated with sire marriages. Now, there's a stark difference between cultural productions of these two um, periods on the topic of Sire. And uh, the films that I examined under the Islamic Republic, even though um, we do have the same factors um, in the cultural productions under the Islamic Republic, one additional thing that we see during this time is that women who enter Sire marriages at this time period are educated and independent women seeking their rights to their body, attempting to explore their sexuality, desiring to satisfy their sexual needs, or even wanting to be mothers, even if it means single motherhood. So all in all, we see that these cultural productions show that within sire marriages, the female body is um, disciplined and policed 
through various sociocultural, political, and religious institutions to, to maintain male dominance and satisfy male sexual pleasure and uh, male social status. So the female body, in this case, in my work, the Sire women characters' bodies, is portrayed as the site where a multitude of sociocultural experiences and powers are inscribed and negotiated. So what I did in my work looking at these two time periods, I also show that um, the, the different strategies that were adopted by these two regimes, the Pahlavi and Islamic regime, have not diminished that social stigma associated with Siren. They have rather perpetuated the victimization of women more often, uh, most often under the facade of religious regulation. And all of the works that I examined illustrate how at first these Sire women are desired and lusted after, but then depicted and um, despised and discarded when they pose a threat to the formal marriage of the man or the political or social reputation of, um, of, the, of this man. However, it also becomes apparent in these works that living invisibly on the margins of the society also heightens the visibility of these women. So Sire women um, in these cultural productions were simultaneously at the margins and at the center. So this hypervisibility hints at the um, Sire women's symbolic social and sexual power, even though they don't have that actual power, it, symbolically they do um, have some sort of power because they pose some, uh, that threat to the reputation and formal marriage of the men. So by focusing on Sire in my book, I try to demonstrate how the female body um, historically has become this catalyst for a symbolic struggle between the social, cultural, religious, and sexual forces that define modern Iranian womanhood. Thank you so much, Professor Yahubi. Uh, these are so much inspiring, and I remember how was how much I was inspired when I was doing my own PhD research, particularly the ideas you talk about um, how the female body uh, is a side where sociopolitical ideologies are mapped into, and also that how they can uh, pose a threat to the dominant ideologies. Um, a theme I've noticed across your most recent work is how the private is also the political. Are you able to say a few words about how this is important to understanding societal and political attitudes towards women in contemporary Iran? Elham, first let me thank you for reading my work and admiring it. I do admire your work as well and many other colleagues' works in, um, in the context of female body. But um, back to your question, yes, the most private matter of women's lives, their bodies, their sexuality, is frequently the canvas on which the political and religious institutions project their ideas. And this is not exclusive to Iran. Let me add this part. This is um, something that we can see in many different societies. The sociopolitical discourses dictate what a woman should or should not do with, with her body. And it's not just sociopolitical discourses. There can be cultural, religious, and other uh, factors involved too. In this way, the boundaries between the personal and the political are blurred as the personal lives and bodies and sexualities of women in my book, Iranian Sireh Women, 
become the battleground for a struggle of power between politics and religion and culture um, and society. The literature and film of modern Iran manifest this female body as the locus for sociocultural policing, a site of social inscriptions, which is docile, subordinate, and passive. Now, with sociocultural codes and power structures inscribed on the female body, cultural productions illuminate how this female body is produced through an interaction of disciplinary institutions and governments within a patriarchal system. Viewing the female body as a site for all these sociocultural, religious, and political inscriptions translates into understanding how the female body functions as a sex object, particularly as an object of a male desire that is always controlled. They portray how the most private and personal experiences of women are tightly associated with the larger sociopolitical structures of a nation at different historical junctures. So that is what I've done in the book. But in addition to the book, I've done other articles um, and you know smaller projects which focus on the same topic as well. And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Accent of Women. On today's show, Dr. Elham Naid interviews Dr. Claudia Yahoubi about women's oppression in Iran in the lead-up to the Iranian presidential elections on the 18th of June. The veil or hijab is a contentious issue in Iran, and as you have written, is more than a religious obligation. Uh, it is also tied with expressions of political loyalty and so- social and economic mobility. Uh, can you please tell the listeners a bit about your comparative research on literature produced by Iranian women and cyber activism regarding the veil? What are the continuities and changes between these two mediums and how they approach the politics of veiling? So as I mentioned, one of the smaller projects or article projects that I've done, which also focuses on the questions of the private and the public and the personal and the political um, in Iranian um, society and with Iranian women's rights and the female body in ir- the context of Iran is an article that will just um, be published in July of this year, July 2021, on the question of veil. So what I did was I looked at, um, you know, different ways that the veil has been used as a tool to police and control women. So over the past 40 plus years after the Islamic revolution, Iranian, um, we know that Iranian women have continued asserting themselves in public spaces, which are designed to exclude them. And they, ha- they have you know, been resisting this targeted violence and media narratives aimed at disqualifying them from accessing these public spaces. Now, often this has this kind of policing and control and disqualification has been done via strategic use of the veil. Focusing on gender segregation and subordination of the female body through dress codes, the Islamic Republic's policies have initiated a shift from public acts of resistance to cyber activism and cyber protests. 
And Iranian women have struggled for the right to veil or unveil for almost 170 years. And important, you know, uh, historical resistance to national control of the veil can be located, for example, in the 1848 radical act of uh, unveiling by Tahir Ghuratul Ain, or the 1936 police enforced unveiling decree of Reza Shah, and the 1979 compulsory veiling law by, um, you know, Khomeini. These resistances have taken various forms and shapes from text-based petitions to creative writing to today's cyber activism for Iranian uh, women's rights activists and women. For years after the Islamic revolution, women have launched text-based campaigns for their basic rights, both in collectives and individually. Now, one of the most popular and important uh, examples of this text-based petitions was the 2006 1 million signatures for the repeal of discriminatory laws. Today's Iranian women, however, have realized that protests centered within the cyberspace cyber and the World Wide Web are more effective forms of bringing various types of activisms together and merging the local with the global. So this form of protest, this cyber activism and cyber protest continues, however, unabated amid state internet and cyber surveillance. That is Islamic Republic, you know, again, surveilling and policing even the internet and cyber activity of these um, individuals. And, which further demonstrates the risks that Iranian women are willing to take to voice their stories and assert themselves in the public. Now, from the cyber activism, of course, is not new and uh, again exclusive to Iran. From the Arab Spring and Wall Street protests of 2010 to 2012, to the Girls of Revolution Street or Dukhtaran Khiyabane and Galab in 2017 to today, Cyber, cyberspace has evolved into a forum for protest, basically. It mobilizes exigencies quickly and snowballs in a matter of hours. So it works pretty well for this kind of activism. And Iranian women have also, in addition to you know, the text-based petitions and cyber activism, have also engaged in various um, resistances against compulsory veiling through their creative writings. For example, if we look at the literature of the past 40 years, we'll find examples of such works, for example, in Monirut Ravanipur or Fershte Mulavi's works where we see resistances to um, you know, the compulsory veiling in Iran. And I believe that this creative writing and literary works of resistance are the lesser acknowledged forms of protest against the compulsory veiling, which we don't hear um, about often. And that's why I have emphasized that in my article. Yeah, you're very right. Thank you. And uh, finally, as someone who has spent most of your life in Iran, can you please tell us uh, something about your memories of presidential elections? Oh, yes. I um, I can tell you about the, um, the, the elections in 19... 97, which resulted in Khatami's presidency. At the time, I was a professor at the Islamic Azad University in Rudehan branch, and um, I was on campus on the day of election. So 
uh, with my colleagues, we walked to one of the centers and we cast our ballot. Um, and, and it was a very promising time. And we were very hopeful at the time with Hatami's presidency. Now on the contrary, I vividly remember the 2005 presidential elections, which resulted in Ahmadinejad's first uh, presidency, first term presidency, which was a very frustrating and scary time. The day of the um, you know, elections, the day that the ballots were being counted and the results were to be announced, I had a full day of teaching at the Kish Language Institute in Vanak in Tehran. And I, I recall that we were um, with my colleagues, we were all so nervous and anxious to hear the results because it, it, we almost had this premonition that um, something unpleasant was about to happen. So every 30 minutes we were walking out of our classrooms and checking with each other and checking with other colleagues who didn't have classes to see if the results had been announced and who was ahead of, you know, who. And even though we didn't have a better, you know, candidate at the time because the other candidate was Rafsanjani, but it was the same as today. The case was the bad and the worst, and we didn't have an ideal candidate as um, we, we don't even today um, as well. So after the um, Ahmadinejad's, you know, presidency in, in 2005, I left Iran at, actually after a year in 2006. The question between the bad and the worst that was something that also came up in the previous uh, election uh, when we were choosing between uh, Rouhani and Raisi. But I think this is something that is different in this year's election round, which I think I don't see this atmosphere. I mean, the atmosphere of choosing between the bad and the worst. Uh, thank you so much, uh, dear Professor Yagobi. It was lovely to hear about your research. And thank you for sharing, for sharing your thoughts with us. Uh, in Iran election, Hazar Charsat. Thanks for listening to me. That was Dr. Elham Naish interviewing Dr. Claudia Yahoubi about women's oppression in Iran in the lead up to the Iranian presidential elections on the 18th of June. And that's all we have time for on today's program of Accent of Women. Accent of Women is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. If you want to hear this show again or any of our previous programs, you can download the podcast from 3CR's website. That's 3cr.org.au. Go to the Accent of Women page and follow the links to this week's show. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can write to us at accentofwomen at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or like our page on Facebook. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Giselle Hanna and I look forward to your company again next week.
ಶಕ್ತ ಪ್ರಭಾವಿ 